Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the Head of Market Analysis, and joined by our Head of Trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. It's Friday, 27th of August, and it's episode 32 of the Market Watch, where I'm joined by Head of Trading, Piers Curran, as we go over some of the main hot topics of the week. So on the agenda for this episode, we have... Jerome Powell, he's just spoken at Jackson Hole. We've just seen the market reaction, not to give too much away, but stocks are trading at all-time highs, so the least shocking event ever. But we'll delve into that a little bit and explain why that's happened and also tie into that uh, a few questions I've received personally about seasonality in markets. And there's a few good points, I think, there for anyone new to markets to understand. Also, obviously, some Scenes in Afghanistan at the airport, and we'll touch upon that. And what does it mean for President Joe Biden and his popularity? Because there's still a lot of work for for Sleepy Joe to get done ahead of the midterms. And then going to talk about the Bank of England. Don't really talk about them that often because obviously there's such a focus on the Fed and tapering. But Piers wants to share a few thoughts about the Bank of England exit strategy. And then Apple, if you can believe it or not, to this week marks 10 years since Apple's iconic co-founder Steve Jobs announced his resignation as the CEO. So how has that gone for Apple? I know you know, but we can discuss it and get some thoughts about what we think. Uh, but I guess the most important news for Piers this week is that Harry Kane appears set to stay at Tottenham. Uh, it was an obvious no-brainer decision in the end, right? I mean, why, why would you swap the mighty Tottenham for the minnows of, of Manchester City? I mean, it was a crazy idea in the first place. Well, I guess, you know, you just have to accept Cristiano Ronaldo instead as a, <laughs> as a second-rate replacement for Harry Kane. Although, although breaking news uh, from one of our colleagues, Alex Fiddler, apparently he's going to Man United, not City. 
That's half the press, BBC source. <laughs> Here you go. The <laughs> podcast that matters. That's right. Finger on the pulse. <laughs> All right. Well, look, let's get straight to it then, because there's a few things to cover here. And I want to start off with the main kind of take for what was, you know, it's been a really quiet week. Uh, and I guess that ties in this, this conversation about seasonality. And, and first things first, whenever there is a big market event, as you know, it's not uncommon for market activity to uh, die down considerably because no investor really wants to step in the way of quite a big pivotal event that could shift market direction in either way, particularly when it's coming from a central bank, which really is the cornerstone of what guides market direction generally. So that wasn't too surprising. But I do often feel that for short-term traders or investors, they then start to almost overemphasize the importance of these types of events. And you know, one thing I was covering in the briefing, I'm not sure if you shared a, a similar sentiment, Piers, but it did feel like this event was being a little bit over-talked, overdone a touch. Yeah. Actually, what Powell said literally an hour ago uh, was that his view is that, quote, substantial further progress threshold has been met for inflation there has been clear progress towards maximum employment. For now, policy is well positioned. So to me, it's a little bit of a nod. Things are going in the right direction. The tapering is coming. And that's about it. <laughs> yeah. What were you expecting? I'm not quite sure what people were looking for uh, at this juncture. Yeah. I mean, I think the word I used to you kind of afterwards was, well, that, that was a bit pants. Uh, <laughs> in so much as well as a market event, it was like, well, okay, that's really dull. Um, so give, give a bit of an explanation then for the people listening. Why are equities at all-time highs? Why did the dollar in yields fall? Subsequently, gold rallied. So what's the rationale there to connect those dots? Yeah, I mean, I, I think firstly, uh, yeah, market reaction is... Uh, I, I, like short term, like in the last hour, let's get it in context here. In the last hour, it's probably, you know, art, you know, artificially high. It shouldn't really, we shouldn't really have seen markets react particularly to what he said because he didn't really say anything. But as you were alluding to, you know, when you're in the, the doldrums of, of August, where you know, half of the planet are on holiday and there's just nothing going on, then, you know, the media need to talk about something. The financial press have to, they have to carry on producing content and selling papers, right? And so they've got to talk about something. And so that's why, you know, the Jackson Hole thing gets hyped up. And it's also uh, a historical thing. This Jackson Hole Symposium, which is uh, an international monetary policy conference, um, happens every year. And, and, and the legacy is that there have been some major sort of comments made at this annual meeting in the past from both uh, Bernanke and um, Draghi, I think, in the past have chosen that platform to really make a, a major comment and a big shift. And I think ever since then, um, the media has always gone, oh my God, it's Jackson Hole, right? What's going to be the major comment from from these guys? And, and of course, in recent times, it's been a non-event. 
And, and but the, you know, it's, it's August. They got to talk about something, and so it gets hyped up, and then traders start to worry about it. You know, investors start to worry about it, and it's a risk event. I mean, that's a fact. So when we're trading and investing, we're always on the looking on the horizon, right? What's happening that could potentially put a bit of a, a banana skin in the way of my strategy, and. You know, it is a risk event. That doesn't mean to say it will materialize as a negative. It's just it might do. And whilst that's a risk, we've got to be mindful of it. And so I think what, what traders were, were, were worried about going into this was that Bernanke, uh, Powell would use this as that, as that moment to say, right, here are the details on our tapering plan. Here's our exit strategy. And they were worried he was going to do that. And if he had have done that, that would have been a hawkish surprise. But he didn't. So all you've seen in, in markets is the relief. It's a relief. It's a very short-term relief move where, oh, thank, thank God he hasn't said, thank God he hasn't been hawkish. So the dollar has weakened. Stocks have gone up, you know, gold's gone up. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, you know, these moves aren't going to extend. This isn't the beginning of another monster phase of dollar weakness, you know, it's just a very short term intraday relief move. Uh, and that's it. And really now we just move on. Yeah. We don't need to wait uh, for too long a period because we've got payrolls next week and, and obviously jobs and how fast jobs recover in America is particularly a key contributing factor to their, to their decision-making. And then, of course, the next FMC meeting when they release their summary of economic projections, the, basically the detailed forecasts get updated on this quarterly basis. So that update normally coincides with more transparency and they like to move historically at these times. So makes sense that that um, event's not happening until the 22nd. It's about a month or so away. So there's plenty of time, yeah. I think, to see. And obviously, you see how Delta plays out. Some of the Hawks cap plan early in the week was saying, well, hang about. Actually, we need to monitor this. And yeah. he was before quite a clear advocate for just pulling the trigger. And so that still needs monitoring as well. And that jobs data, I think, will be very telling by this time next week. Yeah. And, and by that by the time we get to the next meeting, we'll also have had another round of inflation figures, you know, for the month of August. And, and all this plays into that September meeting being the, the moment, you know, where they're going to roll out. Here's, here's the detail behind our exit plan. Um, yeah. So, yeah, today was, was never going to be that. At that point in time as well, we won't go into it now, but this is something you have alluded to before in previous episodes. Um, not just the timing of the initiation but the rate of which they taper, over what period that they taper, i.e. the composition of how they break down that winding down process. All of these will be talking points, I'm sure, in the future. But just let's go back to that whole seasonal conversation. So you mentioned August. Are there any other times of years that, that traders typically identify this lull in markets? Yeah, it's definitely August and December. I mean, to the point where, I mean, I remember back now, um, you know, in years gone by, um, I, I knew traders that would take off the whole of August and the whole of December as by default every year. They would work 10 months per year. And those two months, they're like, there's actually, 
it's 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 negative for me to be at my desk in those two months, and that's because you know it, you know it's all about. Uh, I mean, patience is one of the one of the most valuable skill sets of a trader. And unfortunately, human beings, you know, we like to be doing stuff. We can't just sit there doing nothing and, and we'll kind of irrationally start to invent reasons as to why we should be trading. When, when re- and, and the Powell meeting is the perfect um, example here. There's no reason to trade off Powell. He hasn't said anything, but people do. Because oh, I've been waiting for this moment all week. I've done nothing all week. I've been waiting, you know, hyping it up. And it's almost like you have to do something because it's perceived as such an important moment. So you almost like feel like you've got to trade. Um, so yeah, during August and September, volumes just collapse. And, you know, most people are on holiday. It, it ties in with the kind of school, um, school academic year, of course, as as a lot of a lot of the market participants have family, uh, kids who are at schools. And so, you know, inevitably it's those periods that, that they're kind of forced into taking their long holiday. And remember banks, you know, big banks, um, people, you know, in market scrolls, they're forced to take a two week holiday every year. It has to be two consecutive weeks. They have to have two consecutive weeks off at some point in the year. Because and this is why everything dries up and everything collapses um, in terms of volume. I mean. So on that point then, so let's, let's talk about a hypothetical scenario. So let's say the central bank, I know for one, the ECB, you know, this is when they have their Lake, was it Lake Como? When they have their, let's have yeah. a virtual meeting instead of a physical one. And this is many years gone by and everyone has a giggle about that because there's this hotel, isn't it? On the, on the lake, that's like uber expensive. <laughs> That they all they all uh, go to, but um, the senior guys are away on the desk. But obviously, anything can happen in markets, right? Even though it's August, that doesn't mean that a abnormal event might not just occur unscheduled. So, who's left on the desk? I guess it's the juniors or the lesser experienced people. So, have you ever seen situations then when there is? Uh, is there a higher propensity for things like fat fingers during these quiet periods exacerbated well, they, by market conditions? Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, and, that, and as you say, exacerbated by market conditions, because if you make an execution error at that moment in time where the, the, the market liquidity is really low, where the kind of depth of the order book is really thin because loads of people are on holiday, well, then that that execution error will have a larger market impact. And so it just kind of magnifies it. Um, and there's plenty of stories of this. I mean, I, I remember, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's like when you place your first trade, right? It's probably during this period because your boss has gone away. You know, you're young, fresh on the desk. You're not going, you're, you're not allowed to go away. You don't have kids. So you've got to work the whole of August. No choice. All right, fine. And then you're left there on the desk on your own. And then all of a sudden, like a big client phones up and goes, look, I want to do X, Y, Z. And you're like, oh, wow, really? Uh, okay. Are you talking to me or, um, and then you've got to kind of actually go ahead and do it for the first time. And of course, um, you'll have, you've played this out in your head about a thousand times and it's the easiest thing in the world to execute a trade. But if it's your first one and it's a big one, then, you know, your palms are starting to sweat and you're, you know, you're wanting to get this job done perfectly for your client really quickly. And then, 
you're panicking and, and uh, mistakes can get made. Um, well, you were talking, there was that one at HSBC. Go on, what was the um, yeah, there was, um, story there? Building that I used to work in in the city. There was other trading uh, companies on the floor. And there was a, I mean, so my job obviously was surveilling the market, looking out for any anomalies. And HSBC shares spiked uh, 10%. And obviously I'm sat there. And the first thing I think is, shit, I've missed something. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly thought I am going to get it so hard in the neck Um, and other places probably because people are going to be absolutely fuming. And I was thinking, what have I missed? What have I I couldn't see anything. I was like, how have they gone up 10%? And everyone's panicking on the desk. And so it becomes pretty quick. The, the shares get halted when there's such extreme volatility like that by the exchange, so the London Stock Exchange in this sense. And uh, <laughs> to give it context at the time, the market capitalization of HSBC went up 11 billion pounds <laughs> on that one spike. So it's a big move. And actually what ended up happening was the guy was actually in the building who did this. Um, I'll, I'll spare his name. In your building. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So on our floor, in fact. So um, he was very nearby uh, to us. And I I think what happened was he was inputting basically a a volume order and he inputted it in the wrong column. And instead of actually inputting, uh, I think, a nominal value, he put it in the actual number of shares he purchased. And so um, the actual trade got busted in the end. But so did that guy's career. <laughs> so, so wow. um, yeah, you don't get me. So, so instead of instead of um, buying X number of millions of pounds worth of shares, he basically bought X number of million shares. Right. Yeah, just literally put it in the wrong column. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that was it. I mean, it's not by far, it's not the worst fat finger. I mean, there was one in Japan. I remember when the guy did some sort of spread trade across different Japanese equities and he bought something like multiple tens of billions. Yeah. But in reality, just so people are aware, you don't just get filled on a multi-billion dollar trade. You know, There are checks and balances in place which would see fit that these trades don't get executed. But that doesn't mean that the share price might not jump and that therefore it gets halted and then the trade is called busted and actually yeah. it gets unwound and the trade never actually materialized in that place. But Well, I remember that. I remember the flash crash. Um, that was uh, May 2010, was it? Um, where I think it was AstraZeneca. No, sorry. It was uh, Accenture shares dropped from like 40 odd dollars down to less than $1. And there were a couple of other moves and that it fed into the indexes. And, um, and that was kind of, again, exacerbating a lack of liquidity and then, you know, market impacts. But yeah, I mean, I've made, every, all traders have made execution errors. I mean, and we've, often, not, you know, we've not talked about, <laughs> about the chicken sandwich, I don't think. And we're on episode uh. 32 and the chicken sandwich hasn't <laughs> even come out yet. But come on, now is the time. All right, fine. My best, my best slash worst execution error 
<laughs> and I would say, you know, you often get asked, you know, how do you deal with loss? You know, what was your biggest loss? What was your worst loss? Well, for me, my worst loss was, certainly wasn't my biggest loss, but it was the most difficult to come to terms with and accept was when, um, well, I, yeah. So often when you're trading, you've got positions on, you can't get away from your desk, right? And you don't want to get away from your desk because something might happen at any moment. You want to be there. So like it's lunchtime's coming and you're like, well, I'm starving, but I mean, I can't get away. And, and often there'd be someone who's not in a position or one of the juniors and they'd get kind of sent out to buy like 50 sandwiches from Pret or something and, and uh, bring them back for the floor. And so anyway, I was, I was locked in my desk. And anyway, the sandwich comes along, fine, great. Absolutely starving. Um, so I just crack open the, uh, the pat, the wrapper, and then I'm like, Ow! straight in there with a big, big bite. So aggressive was my, uh, my biting technique that um, a, a big chunk of chicken kind of just squirted out of the corner of the sandwich and it fell and it landed on my left mouse button and it just so happens that my mouse was hovering over the buy at market button and so a piece of chicken bought 1000 contracts of two year german government bond futures called the shats and so i bought 1000 contracts worth of of shats and because the market is a super liquid market that doesn't move um, to get out of that trade. And when you make a trade that you didn't mean to, you should always get out immediately. If you, if you, if you do something by accident, you should absolutely immediately take it off, no matter what, even if it means taking a bit of a loss because you've got a sell at market and you might lose a tick, always take it off. But the human being will go, oh, God, well, well, now I've got the trade on. Well, let's, let's see what happens. Maybe I can make some money kind of thing, right? And, I, and anyway, I, I realized what had happened. And then I'm like, oh, God. And then uh, I tried to take it off. Well, I didn't immediately. And, and then I tried to take it off and it, and it dropped down a tick. And basically, I lost, well, I lost, in short, 15,000 euros. Uh, the piece of chicken cost me 15,000 euros, which was definitely the most expensive lunch I've ever had. And I learned two very, very, very valuable lessons. Number one, don't, put, don't, hop, don't hover your mouse arrow over the buy or sell at market button uh, ever, because you never know what might fall onto your mouse. Um, and then number two, if you do make a mistake, get out immediately. Yes, you're going to lose money, but if you don't get out immediately, you'll probably lose more. Um, so that for me was the hardest loss I think I've ever had to try and <laughs> rationalize and get my head around. I would um, have loved the conversation because I, I know it's your, it's your anniversary, right? Today. I would have loved the conversation <laughs> back then. And your wife goes, how was today at work? And you go, yeah, it was, it was not great. And she's like, explain it to me. Talk to me. And you say... So I was wow. eating a sandwich, and his sandwich basically cost me 15,000 euros. She's like, what planet are you on? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't tell her. Yeah, I kept that. I, smart I, move. I, I tucked that one away and kept that well, one. That was secret. To this. <laughs> but everyone's made execution errors. Not, not just, I mean, that was like a, a crazy one, but everyone's done it where you buy when you were supposed to sell, 
is a, is a really classic one when you're kind of fresh and you're and then stuff's kicking off and you're a bit nervous and you're not quite comfortable and yeah you'll you'll buy instead of sell or yeah as you were saying with that HSBC guy just literally putting the number in the wrong column and it's mm. it's so so simple um, to 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 get right and yet people get it wrong. And that's just that's just bit human beings, act, you know, getting influenced and under pressure and, and not quite mm. behaving rationally. Um, and yeah, so August is a, is a key month for that. So just to um, categorize this conversation about seasonality, there's seasonality as we've discussed. So like global markets seasonality, but then different asset classes obviously have slightly different nuances as well. And I guess the the one that's most obvious is commodity markets because there's hard and soft. So hard being things like metals, soft being things like corn, wheat, soybeans. So the latter has obvious patterns around weather and yeah. growing, harvesting periods. But things like, you know, we talk about oil because that's probably a much more traded product by the majority, I would say. Um, and so things like driving season, it should be a summer period. I know you've mentioned this previously when we've talked about oil on the on the podcasts. Hurricane season. Yeah. That being June to November. So in the Atlantic, uh, it's been really busy, actually. And this weekend, in fact, there is currently a tropical depression. And so it goes up the kind of status, if you like, into and what is expected to be a, uh, a fairly significant hurricane hitting the Gulf of Mexico. Um, on Sunday, so this weekend, so something to just be aware of. That has actually underpinned a bit of the rise and the rationale for that moving oil we've had today, in fact. So BP, Exxon, they've already been evacuating staff, shutting in production in anticipation of this happening. And for anyone new to markets, one thing to, I want you to understand from that is, uh, and this can go even to things like orange juice and, and OJ futures and things like that, is that when you're tracking weather patterns, Traders in these commodity markets look at least six to 10 days in advance and they're pricing in that impact way ahead of time. So when a hurricane ever makes land full, you, it's not uncommon to see prices actually sell off, <laughs> having yeah. been well bid for a prolonged period going into the event. So how you would tackle an event like this Sunday where this weather system is fairly weak at this point, but ex expected to intensify, is now we've priced that in, that intensification. If that does not materialize, well, then all the more the sell-off. Or if it's worse than that, and it goes category five, let's say, most intense, and it moves and pivots to hit certain strategic um, placing of oil facilities, then all the more impactful it could be. So it's a bit of an odd one to think about. And then there's also U U.S. refinery maintenance season in the spring and the fall, and but this could be extrapolated out to slightly different for all commodities to a certain extent. So, just wanted to add that in because it's a little bit more complex for some asset class com commodities specifically than just this rule of thumb of August December, which is yeah. definitely much more like kind of equity uh, kind of FX flows these sorts yeah. of things. Yeah, but let's move on. Let's talk about, um, and just briefly, uh, the situation in Kabul in Afghanistan has obviously uh, was a severe incident um, this week. Two explosions outside the international airport, which killed a large number of Afghans, but also 
among them was 12 US service members, uh, a dozen or more people who were wounded as well. And this comes after US forces um, are continuing to to try and withdraw further people from from that region. Um, and what I wanted to talk about more was, was Biden and the impact that this is having politically. So Biden gave a national address, uh, obviously something he wouldn't have wanted to do, but he's had to do to sh- exert, I guess, the optics, control, and ownership of this situation, which is the right approach, I would say. But he said, and importantly, this is what people were looking for, was what does he do? Does he stick to the timeline of withdrawal, which is basically withdrawal of American forces by August 31st, so it's not long, a couple of days, or given what's happening, do they stay? And it's caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place, I guess. The situation probably requires military forces to create foster degree of stability to get everyone, American and other Western allies, out. But then that's probably not what Americans at the electorate want to hear, certainly when there's a terror attack and 12 of their own soldiers are being killed. How this has transpired so far, he's suffering in the polls right now, and it's been quite symbolic, actually, this week, because it's the first time since he's taken the helm that in the real clear politics, so real clear politics, if you're not aware of it, is an aggregator tool website that's very commonly used even by big financial institutions. And it takes the poll of polls, so the averaging of polls, and it actually showed that, that his public approval rating um, has declined to the point of which Americans now disapproving of his job performance is outnumbering the approval rating. Um, and I mention all this because there's a lot of work to be done for Biden. We still need to get this infrastructure bill completely done. We've got the three and a half trillion budget to be done. You've got the debt ceiling looming. And obviously all of this comes at a time, Afghanistan, possibly the worst time with all of that domestic focus, distracting him from what he needs to get done at home ahead of the midterms, of course. So that's the summary. Any any thoughts on that at all about how you see it at the moment? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not unusual for a sitting president to see their approval rating gradually drop after they take office. It's, it's a very t- typical pattern. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's particularly unusual. Uh, and I mean, for Biden, sure. I mean, obviously you would prefer that it hadn't have gone down, but uh, I, I don't think it's, a, I, I don't think it's unusual. I, and I don't think it's a ma- necessarily a major issue. I mean, of course the, obviously the Afghan situation is a major issue. And what he does about that. Yeah. As you were saying, it's, it's very hard now, isn't it? I mean, I think, that 20 year anniversary, um, you know, because I think everyone had just forgotten, you know, Americans included as to why they kind of moved into Afghan in the, in the first place. And it was post 9-11 and they wanted to move in and try and, you know, kind of retaliate against Al-Qaeda after the Twin Towers got brought down. And, you know, that's just all got lost, hasn't it? It's been so long now. And, um, I think that, yeah, that the exit strategy, I mean, we talk about central bank exit strategy. Well, this is, uh, this exit strategy has just been an absolute shocker disaster. I, I guess, mean, I guess though, could have the exit strategy have been any different? Surely this yeah. was, this was always. I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not saying it, I'm not saying there was an obvious, yeah, yeah. easy exit strategy for them to take. 
Um, I think trying to extract from that was always going to be incredibly difficult. I just, I just think that they botched it. I mean, not only did they, was it difficult, they, they just botched it as well. And, um, and maybe they just massively underestimated uh, the Taliban and, and, and how quickly they would move and, and take control. Um, and now in hindsight, it's obviously easy to criticize, but you know, the important thing is what do they do now? And I mean, I'm, this is, I'm glad I'm not a president. Because I don't know what you do now. But I guess one um, positive thing this week for the administration is the fact that the FDA have approved the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. And I know that sounds rather weird because, I mean, I'm glad they approved it because I got two of those things inside <laughs> me right now. So uh, I hope I don't die from it. But you know, no, it's been approved, so I'm okay. And so is all the other millions of people around the world who've received it. And so obviously it already had been given emergency authorization, but that's not full approval. This yeah. is all to do with that hyper-accelerated fast tracking to get the vaccines out there, of course, as quickly as possible. But we actually saw a big ramp in equities on Monday on the back of that, a contributing factor amongst other things. Yeah, And so that does play into a little bit of the targeted ethnicities so black Hispanics who generally had quite a high degree of vaccine hesitancy, but they do work in the types of jobs that need to be filled in order to get this economy firing again, which is those kind of more kind of um, facing roles in hospitality, leisure, these sorts of things. And so actually that is a positive development, I guess, and might help the market heal on the real economy side. And uh, so something there for, for him to, to perhaps look at. But yeah, it's such a, I mean, such a tough job these these heads of state and central bankers have. So yeah, as much as they, it's easy to criticize them, I think yeah. people need to remember, put yourself <laughs> in their shoes. It's, an, it's a no-win job most of the time. But, yeah. um, but let's move on. Let's talk about, there's something you wanted to mention, which yeah. is uh, the Bank of England exit strategy. So what have you got for me on that? Just, just, just briefly. I mean, so the Bank of England, because... Um, because um, Bailey wasn't at the Jackson Hole, didn't go to Jackson Hole. So I think they probably thought, well, okay, we're not going there. So let's just, so their August meeting, they, they kind of, I guess they're the first major central bank to really start detailing that exit plan. And they've done it slightly differently to the, the Bank of England's exit plan from the financial crisis. Only, and, and the main difference is it's, well, so interest rates here in the UK, are at 0.1%. So actually, their, their first plan is to raise rates from 0.1 to 0.5. And that's like a historical thing because during the financial crisis or post-financial crisis, the floor on rates was 0.5%. And they've kind of gone, I guess, below their, their floor following COVID to 0.1. And they would just want to bump it. Let's just get it back to the floor at 0.5. And then after they've achieved that, then they're going to start to um, tackle the balance sheet and think about the money supply. So this will come in a couple of phases. So you know they've already ended their QE program. So this is now about um, what's called stopping reinvesting, because these central banks, through quantitative easing, have been boughting, have been buying assets, um, billions, trillions of dollars worth of assets, and these assets, some of them, a lot of them are bonds, right? And these bonds have uh, a maturity date. 
And when this bond, this loan reaches its maturity date, there's a redemption payment. And that's where the lender, sorry, the borrower pays back the lender. And in this case, the lender is the central bank because they're the one that owns the bonds, right? So when these bonds hit redemption, the central bank get the payout and reinvesting that money is basically the central bank saying, well, any redemption payments we get, we're going to use that cash to buy more bonds. And that's just maintaining the money supply at a flat level. Because if they didn't reinvest it, well, when that redemption payment comes from the borrower to the central bank, then actually the money supply is dropping, which is tightening policy. So the next, so, so they're reinvesting at the moment, right? So after they've hiked rates to 0.5, they're going to then, when the economy's ready, they're going to stop reinvesting. And that's just like beginning to reduce the money supply gradually. And then once they've, once they've achieved that, they're then going to um, raise interest rates um, to 1%. And then they're going to move away from interest rates again. And, and then they're going to say, right, we're actually going to start selling our bonds. We're not going to wait till these bonds reach redemption. We're going to speed up the reduction of our balance sheet. We're going to speed up the reduction of the money supply. I guess all what does all of this mean? And we're interested to see what the Fed do, because as of yet, we don't have the detail. And it'll be interesting to see whether they follow any of this Bank of England move. But the one, well, the one thing in conclusion is that there's more emphasis this time in this exit strategy, there's slightly more emphasis on balance sheet reduction than there is on hiking interest rates. Um, and so will the Fed follow suit? I don't know. But one, one kind of outcome from all of this may be that it's a yield curve steepening. If they focus more on reducing the money supply as, as that kind of main priority in the exit strategy rather than raising rates, then that should lead to longer duration bonds being sold, which should lead to their prices dropping and those yields going up. And if interest rates aren't going up as fast, then actually you're getting an anchoring of rates on the short end and, and long end yields are rising. So you get a, a steepening of the yield curve, which is of course what they want. That, that would be a healthy thing. And one healthy outcome and side effect of that would actually be yields returning, You know, actually proper yields being available for investors. And so investors being able to generate yields from safer assets again, because what's happened in this post-crisis era, I mean, financial crisis now, in this zero interest rate environment is that the hunt for yield has meant that investors have been forced into taking ever more risk to find yield, where they're having to go to buy much higher risk, let's just say, emerging market bonds to find yields that they need. And so, steepening of the yield curve may well bring that back. It may well just de-risk some of these kind of major pension fund portfolios, for example, which would be a really healthy thing. Um, so that was just some, that's just something I wanted to flag. And it'll be interesting, much more interesting to see what the Fed say than the Bank of England, just because the Fed's balance sheet is just off the scale. Eight and a half trillion, I think we're up to now, which is obviously way, way bigger than anything the Bank of England have got. So it'd be interesting just to see if, if the Fed in any way kind of um, follow suit. Yeah, it's interesting because seems like if you go over to Australia, countries in that region, you had things like yield curve targeting, which never formally got adopted here. Now the Bank of England are breaking the mold slightly with what sounds like a quite, sounds very committed, this structured approach, which 
does make me a little bit nervous. <laughs> but, but then I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the initial onset of the financial crisis, it was all fairly uniform. And now as we go on a decade later, we're starting to see everyone break out slightly different strategies, which I guess is appropriate because every's economy is slightly different. And so the pains are in different places, I guess. Um, but yeah, interested to see, as you say, as how the Fed make that ultimate decision, which we, as we say, we don't need to wait long. But um, to finish off then, let's have a quick chat about Tim Cook and Apple. What, yeah. what have you got on that? Well, he's the new billion dollar man. <laughs> uh, Tim Cook just sold $750 million worth of uh, Apple share options. Um, so I'm sure he's, he's got a big smile on his face. Wow. Uh, I mean, we, I just, how do you even compute that? I mean, you talk I, about, yeah. um, I don't know, selling out. Oh, I saw, I had a startup and I sold it for $50 million. Amazon bought it, you know, and I, it's like, this guy's just, just pocketed $750 million. So he's, he's hitting his 10-year anniversary from taking over from jobs. And when he started 10 years ago as CEO, he got given a package, a remuneration package that included a lot of stock options that were tied to targets, you know, revenue targets predominantly. Um, and well, to say, well, well, when he took over the value of Apple, um, so he took over in, in June 2011. And the value of Apple at that point was $348 billion, which was a monster company back then. Um, it's $348 billion. It's now $2.48 trillion. Um, so actually, 80% of Apple's market cap has been added on in Tim Cook's one decade in the job. So... Of course, he smashed. I mean, you can't go back 10 years. There's no way the board at Apple could have, even in their wildest dreams, would they have thought, oh, yeah, we're going to get to two and a half trill in the next 10 years. Not even in their wildest dreams. So obviously, he smashed all the targets. And so, you know, he's, he's taking his due, I guess. And he's, um, he, he's cashed in. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's just literally cashed in this week, 250 million. That's thought to now um, mean that his net worth is over a billion dollars. Um, not bad. Well, I, I was looking at the stats as well. You were showing me some charts. There's some interesting ones. When he took over, and this, you won't be able to get your head around this. When he took over, iPhone sales was less than 50% of their revenue. And that's because the iPhone, I mean, iPhone 1 was 2007. Mm. Um, and so by 2011, $44 billion was iPhone revenue. Non-iPhone sales was $55 billion. Of course, obviously, these days, it, it, it's flipped. I guess it's getting less and less so. But you know, if you go back five years, iPhone sales was like 80% of their revenue. In recent times, iPhone sales are still the majority, but that, that majority is getting, is getting smaller, of course, as they're, they're making more and more revenues from other parts of their business. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird to think. I remember very clearly back then when Steve Jobs stepped down and it was like, oh my, wow, that's it. That's it. 
Apple had done. I mean, Innovation Jobs, over. he made the iPhone. That will be his legacy. And, and that's it. How, how could they possibly survive without Steve Jobs? And it was a major, who's this Tim Cook guy? And that, that, that's it. They've peaked. <laughs> That, that was yeah. genuinely kind of the, the mindset. We were, just, we were just having a look at this. So essentially your three biggest companies on the planet. So if we talk about Microsoft, Gates actually stepped, stood down from his day-to-day running of Microsoft in 2008. Now one of the world's biggest companies. Amazon, Bezos leaving was only just happened. Any notion that that was going to destabilize their share price is just... Completely misplaced. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting, isn't it? The organisations are just bigger than these individuals. But one person I do want to have a pop at in this podcast, if I can, go on, I may, is there's nothing more frustrating um, when I see when, well, when my internet connection via Virgin Media, <laughs> and I see Richard Branson flying into space. So I'd just like to say to Richard, when he's listening to this podcast this weekend, I'd like to say, can you spend a bit more time on planet Earth, please, and fix my internet connection? Because it's unacceptable. I, I'd say of all of the big CEOs, is he, is he the hardest one to like? Would that, would that be unfair, Branson? Well, he's, he's definitely not in my good books this week. <laughs> Copper fiber broadband. Uh, there was some interesting that all this Tim Cook stuff's come up, and and actually there was some charts. I, th- I think you might have even sent it to me, which was actually looking at how much Google pay Apple. Yeah. So I was just talking about there where the iPhone sales is still the majority of revenue, but that that majority is becoming thinner and thinner and thinner as other parts of their business really start to motor. And one of one of those parts is Google paying Apple. So Google in 2020 paid Apple ten billion dollars. That was for them purely to be the default search browser on iOS. Ten billion um, this year. They're expecting to pay fifteen billion, and that's actually that's nine percent of Apple's gross gross profits. Yeah. Um, and next next year is expected to go to eighteen to twenty billion. And you're thinking, what? That's an incredibly expensive bill for Google to have to pay. Why would they do that? But actually. It's thought that Google, just purely from being the default browser on iOS, generate upwards of $50 billion in revenue. It's a good deal. Crazy. Let's just get rich together. Let's be the <laughs> billionaire bowler club. Come on. Spread the love. But I Just to finish on this Apple thing, I mean, look, King, Tim Cook has obviously extraordinary decade. He's, ne- he's agreed to stay on for five more years at least. And by the way, part of that, we'll see him pick up at least, obviously, it depends on targets again, but he's looking at another at least probably $125 million worth of stock options that he's just been um, granted. Um, But the next decade is going to be a lot different to the one he's just been. He's ridden the crest of a wave in so much as he's benefited from, you know, Apple's, of course, they're, they're hugely dependent on global supply chains. And, you know, during the last decade, I know COVID's now reversing that. That's why the next decade looks a lot more difficult. But global supply chains have just fed this monster, particularly in terms of iPhone uh, production, of course. And we're about to get the iPhone 13 coming. And so production rates are stepping up. But yeah, they've obviously been a huge beneficiary of global supply chains and COVID 
and just protectionism more broadly is is now putting that at risk. Uh, Apple employ uh, well, yeah, over a million Chinese workers, and so they've seriously benefited from what used to be very relatively very cheap Chinese salaries. That's becoming less and less so now, um, and also as part of that, they've created a massive um, brand awareness in China, and um, actually. Unlike most of the other big tech firms, you know, Apple have really nailed China. $60 billion worth of, of revenue on an annual basis for them in that country. So that's been a lot to do with you know, huge numbers actually working for the company. Also, it's been a phase where governments haven't been too bothered about these mega companies you know, just dominating market share. And now the regulatory environment has, has started to turn. And then finally, tax avoidance. You know, they've, and again, that's turning now. But over the last decade, on average, Apple have spent, uh, have been taxed at 17% on average. And that's definitely going to go up. That that, that latter point, given the numbers with Apple, that could be fixed in Congress behind closed doors. Yeah. That won't come to fruition. Which is why is the US actually a democracy? Yeah. yeah, well, we'll leave that to our listeners to make that decision. Yeah. And on that note, um, if you enjoyed the episode, please share with a friend or a colleague. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It really helps people find this channel, get out the message to as many people as possible. We'd be hugely appreciative of that. And also, we've got some exciting news coming, meaning that we're going to have an interim episode coming oh, yes. on Wednesday next week. No more to be said for now. So stay tuned. Cliffhanger. Channel. <laughs> and on that cliffhanger, Piers, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. And yeah, take have a great weekend. See ya. All right. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.